um, beautiful day today. Um, uh, what else can I say? Nice to see you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, this will make it less boring to be stuck in my house all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was born in 1943 in the summer in an army camp in Niagara-on-the-Lake. My dad was in the army because it was during the war. Uh, and so, and my father was in, in the army for most of my childhood. So we were always moving around because he would get posted somewhere else and we would follow him or go with him or whatever. So I lived in, uh, after, after living there in Niagara-on-the-Lake, I think I lived in Toronto for a while when I was about three years old or something and then I ended up in an army camp when I first started school which is north of Toronto uh, called Camp Borden. I think it's called Base Borden now and uh, and then we moved several times back and forth between these uh, a camp an army camp in um, in Chilliwack BC and one in Wainwright, Alberta, and this other one, Camp Borden, was kind of like back and forth, back and forth. So my older brother, he did not attend school for an entire year until he was in grade six. Like it was always moving somewhere to some other school, you know. Me, I was a couple of years younger than him, so it was a little, a little sooner that it became more like we would spend four years here, four years there kind of thing. So by the time, um, I guess, so we were out west for most of the time until I was 11. And then we moved back to Ontario and back to Camp Borden. And that's where I went to my first year of high school. And then my father got sent to uh, Oakville, Ontario, which is right outside of Toronto, which was a terrible adjustment for me because before it had always been, you know, army camps near small towns. It was all very small town kind of thing. And Oakville was, you know, Oakville is one of the richest um, municipalities in Canada, you know. So even though I didn't go to the richest school, the richest public school, I went to the, the one more in the suburbs. But even there, all the kids had their own cars and drove to school and it was a very big adjustment. I found it really difficult, you know. And, and I noticed the air pollution a lot, which back then, everybody just said, oh, you're crazy, you know. <laughs> but there was like an oil refinery not too far away, and, and there was a big uh, auto manufacturing uh, was, was in uh, Oakville and so on. And, uh, and I wasn't very happy there. I never really felt like I'd fitted in, and uh, I can't. I, I remember being very unhappy, and my older brother saying to me that I should um, uh, that I would be happier in university, and that was probably when I was uh, in grade about to. No, let me see. I would have been in grade twelve, but in Ontario, the last year of high school was then was grade thirteen. So what I did was I looked into what universities I could go to that uh, you, you could go from grade 12. So there, were, there was McGill 
and there was uh, Assumption University in Windsor. So I applied to both of them. My father, who never expected to send his daughters to, uh, to university, uh, he had five children, he, uh, he was like, well, you know, unless you get a scholarship, like, forget it, you know. And uh, so I got accepted to McGill. I don't remember about Assumption. You know, maybe in June, but I never heard about money. And then, like, two weeks before the semester started, I got informed that I had uh, been given this huge scholarship, which would pay for my tuition and my board. So I, uh, that was it. I suddenly left. <laughs> Didn't have much money, and, and at the time I'd been seeing this social worker for some counseling, and he thought that, you know, it would be good for me not to accept a lot of help from my parents because that would mean they would be controlling me. And so I kind of agreed, so I got a job um, running these two uh, groups of little girls. Um, just paid me $5 each time, so I think I made $10 a week, which was enough back then for my, uh, you know, you know, whatever little things I needed, everything else being covered, you know. And, uh, and so I lived in Royal Victoria College, which is now Schulich School of Music. And, uh, and there again, there were all these very snobby girls who were from rich families who, uh, who had no respect for anything, you know. And I don't know, they were just, most of them, not all of them, but many of them, not very nice. But... There was a, a group of other um, young women who were there on scholarship, and we kind of palled up, you know, because we were mostly not from well-to-do families, and, you know, so we felt more comfortable with each other. And so I made some very good friends, and, uh, and I, first I was going to study um, modern languages and, you know, see where that would go. But then I decided somewhere after the first or second year to, uh, to go into honors psychology. So that's what I did. And then um, when I graduated with this degree, um, and I, because I was on this scholarship, I had to keep these very high grades. But in the last year, of course, I didn't have to. So then I didn't work very hard. And I didn't have very good grades. <laughs> which meant later on when I was thinking of graduate school, it wasn't quite so good, you know. <laughs> but, um, but the thing that bothered me most was that at the end of university, I w there was no plans, nobody wanted to marry me, you know. And I just thought, well, what am I going to do? I, you know, I have to be, you know, like this was so important. And my mother had always, you know, her attitude towards me had always been, you know, you must never let the boys know how smart you are because, you know, they won't like you if they find that out. So, you know, you got to really don't talk about it, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, and then so this whole idea that, that I hadn't yet got married was like, whoa. <laughs> but anyways, that year, the last year of my universe, uh, university in, in honor psych, they chose four of us to be interviewed for a Woodrow Wilson scholarship in, um, in the States. And, but a Woodrow Wilson scholarship, you couldn't do like say clinical psychology, which is what I was interested in then, because it was, 
it was designed to make sure that people would go on to teach in universities and colleges, I think. So, um, so I won this Woodrow Wilson scholarship. Then I didn't know if I wanted to take it. <laughs> and, uh, and I can't remember now why. I think it was because I wasn't, you know, wasn't married. I don't know. And I thought, well, if I keep going in university, this will, the situation will just get worse. And I'll end up as this old maid. <laughs> you know, that was still that idea back then. You know, oh, an old maid. <laughs> so, and then what happened, I got a summer job at the Y, sort of, you know, working with some adult groups and some children's groups and stuff like this. And through um, one of the events that we had for the uh, adults was um, I invited my roommate to come to, and she really hit it off with this guy who came to the group regularly who was an artist. And, um, and he started telling me that uh, I should meet his roommate because we had so much in common. And I didn't think much of this guy. I really thought he was just a guy who was on the make. Mm -hmm. And that was about it, you know. But finally I said, okay, okay, I'll meet this guy. So that turned out to be my husband. Oh. <laughs> he was very nice. <laughs> and, uh, and I was very lucky to, uh, to meet him, you know. But he was from a, a poor family too. His father was, um, was a musician but couldn't raise his family on what he made as a musician. So he worked in a shoe factory and he had five children also. And, and Bert, my husband, he was one of the younger kids. And he had come to Montreal. At that time, he was working at the bank, I think. And uh, then he decided he would like to... He was, buy, he was reading a lot of books that he didn't think he understood and thought, well, I'll take a course at Sir George. So he started taking night courses at Sir George, which is Concordia now. And... Um, and so when I met him, I said to him, why don't you go back full time in the daytime, you know? And he said, oh, I'm trying to save up the money first. And I said, well, if you try to do that, you'll never get there. Just go, you know? And, you know, maybe the Quebec government will help you out and so on and so forth. So, so we moved in together in 1966, and uh, he was starting the, um, a BA at, at uh, Sir George. And... I think at that point I'd already finished my degree and I had spent a, a, not a year but maybe eight or nine months working as a social worker but without the social work training uh, for a children's aid in uh, Belleville in Ontario. So I decided to come back and go to uh, the School of Social Work here at McGill and so he was at, Sir George and I was at, uh, at McGill. And we, and then I finished my Master of Social Work, started working in an agency on the South Shore, and and then, so but by '69 he had finished his courses and he had graduated, and um, and he, we he was looking into graduate school, and ended up that we went to Hamilton. He went to McMaster. And I got a job uh, working in a children's treatment center. So a lot of the work that I did up until the late 80s was uh, working with children with uh, 
behavioral disturbances. For a year, for, well, for several years while we were living in Hamilton, I worked at a treatment center there where I really had, a, had met a, a, a psychiatrist, a woman, who, was really, who really impressed me, and I learned a great deal from her about respecting children and their rights and so on and so forth. And, uh, and I came back to Montreal and I worked for Ville-Marie Social Services, but I'd ended up that, uh, you know, they kind of started harassing me in the, in the 80s. They didn't like me because I, uh, because I did stick up for the kids and I didn't like the way their bureaucracy ran and so on and so forth. And uh, so eventually I, I quit. I just, even though it meant that, you know, I was losing, I was only half time because once my kids were born, my kids were born before you had really good maternity leave and stuff like that. So I always, so I had the kids and went right back to work, but worked part-time. So, um, so it was only a part-time uh, salary, but it was still a good one, you know. And, uh, and then at that point, that was in the, around 84, I think, I had been taking some fine arts courses at um, John Abbott, because that's where my husband was teaching in St. Anne. And so I, uh, I decided to, um, to go to Concordia. Mm. So, so I did my BFA at Concordia, which was really a lot of fun. <laughs> it was great not to be involved in social work anymore, where people are always asking you about your motivation for doing things, you know, like, oh, I think you're doing that because you have some hang up on about your father or you know <laughs> whereas in art school everybody is just doing their thing and if they seem crazy who cares you know and um, and then after that I it's hard to find work with just a you know a BFA and so um, eventually I ran into some people that I knew th that they were teachers at uh, Vanier and they were involved in this organization called the Montreal Health Press. And that was a women's organization that had started in the, in the I think around 68, they had brought out the first uh, handbook on birth control when, at the time when that was illegal information. And, and the, these, they were handbooks. They were more, looked like magazines. They, uh, they were distributed um, they were sold basically, but for very cheap um, across North America. And a lot at that time, a lot of universities would order them for their like huge numbers for their freshmen and so on. And they went on to do a book on sexually transmitted diseases, one on sexual assault, and one on menopause. So, so they hired me because their sales were deteriorating, and they thought perhaps with all my experience in the social services, I could help improve the sales. <laughs> and, and the books were in French and English, so I had to, you know, I had to deal with a lot of um, CLSCs and SAGEPs and so on. And so that probably accounts for my French getting a little better, but it was never, it never really was that great, you know. It was good enough to do that job 
and uh, and I learned a great deal from that job. You know, um, a lot of stuff about uh, women's rights and that kind of thing, and you know, and met a lot of people, and it was very interesting. Um, but I didn't help in, in, increase the sales. So, but I kept it going for about 12 years, I think. Uh -huh. um, but in the meantime, because it, several times it looked like they were going to have to fold, I found another job, which I did sort of part-time also. So the one job was three days a week. This other one I would fit in doing two a week or whatever I could. And that was working for Fernwood Publishing which was also an extremely interesting, not well paid, but extremely interesting uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Because there, um, all the books that Fernwood uh, produces themselves, or the ones that they sell f from other publishers, you know, that they distribute, um, at, the, at that time when I first started working for them, which was around the early 90s, they would send me copies of almost all these books. So I read a lot of them. So I really, that really, I mean, I was, a, I was an activist, you know, in the sense that I had protested the, the war in Vietnam, and I was a hippie, so I had, you know, typical hippie-type ideas about sexual freedom and all that kind of stuff. But when I started reading the books um, that analyzed the global situation and... Um, all that kind of thing, then I really, really learned a lot. And, and I was a sales rep um, going around to the, um, at first it was the two universities in Ottawa, um, Queens and Kingston, the English universities in Montreal and Bishops. So I met, I mean it was, in some ways it was a difficult job because some, some professors are kind of you know, not very warm towards salespeople, and if they're not very progressive, then they're not interested in those kind of books at all. And so a number of times, you know, I found people were kind of rude. But, but on the other hand, the people who were progressive, it was so interesting to get to know them. And, uh, yeah, so I, I really loved that job. Mm -hmm. I finally quit in 2012 just because I couldn't... Um, it involved carrying around a lot of catalogs, and physically I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, my friend Kim mm -hmm. helped me for a while. <laughs> yeah, in return for his meals. <laughs> and uh, so that kept me going a bit longer. Yeah. But finally in 2012 I said, well, that's it, I can't do it anymore. So. Well, the, the thing is that Bert, my husband, was working on his PhD. And he had chosen to do a Marxist analysis of, I'm not sure exactly, but something about the Canadian state. And it wasn't popular at the university. So he had an advisor who was, who was kind of a spaced out hippie type. So he was not that much help to him. He was a nice guy, but you know. And other than that, the other uh, people on the faculty did not seem to really support this work that, that Bert was doing. And in the meantime, we heard from friends back here about the Sejeps having opened. And so one day, one weekend, we came up to visit some friends of ours, and they said, you know, they're hiring at John Abbott. 
you know, they said to Bert, you should go out and look into it. So he phoned them, he got an interview almost right away, and he got the job just like that. <laughs> so we came back to uh, Quebec, which we'd always missed, and, um, and he, um, he stayed there until he died, basically. Mm. He loved teaching there. He loved teaching, period, mm. you know. Mm. And after two or three, so for a little while he was trying to finish the PhD, um, you know, on the side, you know. But after a while, one day I think we, we just sat down and talked about it, how it meant, because by that time we had two children, and it meant that he couldn't spend as much time with the family as he would like. And what was the point, really? He might get a slightly higher salary by getting the PhD, but it was not a requirement of that job. Mm -hmm. So he decided to give it up. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have two sons. And um, so Ryan is 46 now. And uh, he, um, he was born when we were in Hamilton. And uh, when we first came back to Montreal, we actually lived in Verdun for about six or eight months. So, but he doesn't remember that, he was two. <laughs> Anyways, and then we moved to St. Anne. So from then, and for Donovan, he was six weeks old when we moved to uh, St. Anne. So, um, so they grew up out there. So Ryan um, was very interested in filmmaking. He, um, he took a degree at Concordia that was uh, filmmaking, like I guess a BFA in filmmaking, and he was um, combining it with anthropology. But in the end, he, it got too heavy for him, so he just finished the film part of it, you know. So he has made a few films, um, one about organic food, which was really good, which the NFB distributes, and, um, and one about the merger-demerger issue in Montreal, but focusing on St. Anne trying to demerge, which was not a popular thing with any of the activists that I knew. Mm -hmm. But I felt very strongly, having lived in St. Anne, that the, the right to be their own city and run their own affairs was very important mm -hmm. and that it shouldn't have been taken away from them. You know, That's the last film that I remember, big film that I remember him doing. He now does short things and he'll do weddings and stuff as, you know, mm -hmm. as a source of extra mm -hmm. uh, income and so on. But he got a job in 2002 teaching also at John Abbott in the creative arts. And uh, so he likes that a lot. And he is uh, political. Um, so he ran for um, town councillor this, he just got elected for his third time. Oh. Yeah. And his thing, he's a very big environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And so he actually did a master's degree at York University, uh, master's in environmental education. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so he's done a lot of things in St. Anne, like in terms of, um, you know, programs that mean that the, the town is greener and different kinds of mm -hmm. things. Um, that are that are all things that I think are very good, you know. Um, and uh, he got married how long ago? Two thousand and nine or ten? Ten, I think. 
So later, you know, he was older and now has two kids. So mm-hmm. they're three and five. And my other son, Donovan, he was the younger one. He was, he's now 41, I think. And he, he was a very bright uh, student and he loved uh, physics. And uh, he was also quite talented uh, musically. And, uh, and for a while he wrote really quite interesting poetry. He wrote a poem once called Smoking in Quebec which is about smoke. <laughs> it was a great poem. He took it and, and made it into a political thing about uh, René Levesque with his cigarette hanging from his lips and so on, you know. Um, but in the end, he, he decided he wanted to pursue the physics. And uh, so he has a PhD in, um, in uh, theoretical physics, which he did at UBC. And then he got... Um, he started doing a, a whole series of postdoc positions. The first one was in Berlin. So he's been in Europe ever since. He, did, he was in, um, in Berlin, in Copenhagen, in Stockholm. And then finally, he got a three-year uh, replacement of somebody else, temporary job, at uh, Queen Mary University in um, London. And uh, but unfortunately, that didn't uh, didn't lead to permanent work. By that time, he had a daughter, and his wife had gotten work as a teacher's assistant, and they were living uh, just outside of London in St Albans. And so he finally made this difficult decision to not to continue with the physics, even though it was his first love. Because, you know, the situation is so bad with universities and he would have had to go back to postdocs, which would have meant moving around all the time and stuff like that. So eventually he got a job in a private school in St. Albans. And I don't see much of them, you know. Um, They were here this summer, so he just has the one daughter. And... uh, and he's been with his wife. He started dating his wife when he was 14 and she was 17. So I've known her for a long time. <laughs> and she's very nice. And um, both my sons married really nice people. It's hard to keep, keep a kind of continuity with your grandchild. It's my granddaughter. Um, if you don't see them that much. Even, even with Skyping, it just doesn't do it, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, let me think now. Yes, I well, up until 65, I don't remember paying that much attention to it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it was more after I'd met Bert okay. and more like, so Bert started back to uh, Sir George in 66, I think. There was a lot going on, on at Sir George in those years, mm-hmm. right? I mean, right off the bat, there was a student... Um, uh, protest in the bookstore that he got involved in, and uh, and then there there were constant uh, marches against the war in Vietnam, so we were very involved in that. I think we were somewhat involved when we were in Hamilton too, though. So it must have been, oh yeah, because yeah, I'm getting confused here. Yeah, from '66 on, mm-hmm. I would say we were very involved in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only remember going out on marches, mm-hmm. you know. Um, a lot of marches, uh, 
not the scary ones that they are nowadays, you know. I mean, there would be police on horses, though, and so you'd be sometimes afraid that they're going to uh, run you down or whatever, you know. Um, and going to teach-ins, I guess, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I can remember, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I sort of feel that in... You know, my activism at that time was kind of, I know not everybody was, it was kind of went hand in glove with being a hippie and, you know, um, and I don't think, I think when I, later on when I got involved uh, again after my husband died, mm -hmm. it was on a different level, mm -hmm. right? But then it was more just, you know, of course, we're against it, and we'll, you know, we'll join in the marches and that kind of thing. And uh, and by the time that that computer um, occupation took place at at Sir George, Bert had already kind of gotten involved in this committee to restructure the university, you know, because there was all that student power stuff going on then, right? And uh, and so the um, the Maoists at uh, at at Sir George were writing things about him, saying he was an opportunist hack, <laughs> and all this kind of thing. But then we went to Hamilton, where people were very conservative, and they just thought he was the most outrageous, like crazy revolutionary they'd ever seen. Right? <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, and of course, everywhere we went, because we were involved in that kind of thing, then we met other people who were involved. And, um, and then I think by the time we came, by the time Bert got the job at, uh, at John Abbott, um, that was in 73, and I had, uh, um, Ryan was born, and Donovan was born in 76. In those years, I don't recall being very active. Mm -hmm. I think around that time, anyways, was when Nixon ended it, right? Um, and then my feeling in the 80s was that, you know, all this wonderful camaraderie that we had at that time had just died, you know? Mm -hmm. And that people were generally kind of depressed because, you know, it seemed like the the desire to fight for social justice had died off, you know? Mm. Um, so then what I recall in terms of getting re-involved or more concerned or whatever was um, in the late 90s, um, a, a friend of mine in um, St. Anne, she got approached by that group, um, I don't know if I can remember the name of it. Um, there was the CLAC and there was this other group, um, something that sounds like Dirty Secret or, um, oh, I forget their name. It'll come to me later, mm. maybe. Anyways, uh, they, uh, they approached my friend Vivian and said they, they wanted to have this protest. It was... Um, some big meeting that was taking place at the, um, see now this is where my memory <laughs> is okay. getting very bad for names and stuff. Um, one of the hotels anyways, downtown. It was that one on 
uh, near the corner of Randy Levesque and uh, and um, Peel. I can't remember. Anyways, so this group in St. Anne was going to be part of this. Um, they were going to block off the hotel so people couldn't go in and out. And um, at that time, I had just had the, my first hip replacement, and um, and I had fallen on it, and it was no, I was not in good shape physically. So I was involved, but I couldn't get directly on the front lines. I kind of went, brought a chair, I think, sat on the edges of it, and so on. Um, but so, and and that's when I met Jaggy, Jaggy Singh because he was involved with them then. Um, Salami, Operation Salami was their name or something? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And um, so then I think, um, then of course there were all these big international meetings and, and these huge demonstrations that were happening everywhere and this anti-capitalist feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and when the FTAA took place in Quebec City in 2001, so just before that, Bert and, a, and two or three other teachers had decided to organize a series of um, lectures and you know events to to talk about this issue, you know. And Jaggy was one of the people who came out and spoke. And um, and so we all went off to Quebec City, and uh, and I think I I don't know how I did this. Oh, because the same year there was going to be um, one of those uh, they used to call them the Learneds, but they're now called the um, something rather of human sciences. Anyways, these big con academic conferences that happen every year mm -hmm. in Canada. And so that, that year was going to be in Quebec City. And my boss had asked me to find accommodations for all of us in Quebec City. And it was pretty hard to find anything in the downtown area. And it ended up that I found this campgrounds and uh, that had little cottages and stuff, and it was very close to the city, and so I had arranged that. Well, then I, and that was gonna be in late May, I think. So then I started thinking, maybe these guys would let us stay there if we went down for the FTAA. And it was a little early in the season, you know, the water was still not unfrozen and stuff like that, but they said we could use uh, some of these cottages. And the sort of wor word went out, uh, you know, sort of by word of mouth, a lot of people got involved. And so there we all were in this campgrounds and going into Quebec City. And I had made sure that I had a wheelchair because I still couldn't walk very well. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think my two sons were there too, but they were, by that time, they were pretty well grown up and they were, you know, probably had either gone with other people or you know, but they were around, mm -hmm. and uh, and um, that was an, a phenomenal thing, you know. Um, so I think after that, I started um, attending the meetings of the CLAC here in Montreal quite regularly. CLAC was the is I think it still exists the coalition 
It's an anti-capitalist coalition. I'm not sure what the L stands for, but that's what it was. And um, they used to meet all the time at uh, Saint, not Centre Saint Pierre, that other one that's on um, on. <laughs> See what I mean? It's very, it's hopeless. <laughs> Anyways, uh, somewhere near the um, Barry Ucam Metro, a little east of that. Um, and it was a, a place where they met all the time. And, um, and then my husband died in 2003. And uh, he died in February of that year. And that was just when there was all these protests um, against the war in Iraq. And in fact, he died on the 12th of February, and on the 15th, there was a very big march here in Montreal. And um, the night that he died, I had gone over to a friend's place because I had made this um, paper mache head of George Bush, but I didn't feel it looked very much like him. And so that particular night, I'd really studied George Bush's face because I realized I didn't have the sculptural aspects. I had this kind of flat image, you know? And I'd gone over to my friend's place, which was just a few blocks from where I lived, and we were working on that. And um, in the meantime, uh, Ryan was coming back from a protest about the seal hunt in Ottawa. It was supposed to have been let off at the exit in for St. Anne, but he wasn't. It was a very, very cold night. He called uh, home and asked Bert to pick him up. And somehow, nobody really knows what happened exactly, but uh, he had, Bert had an accident on the way to go get him, which was very difficult for, for my son and, and for me and for all of us, of course. And... Uh, whether the car, it seemed like on the access road to the 40, the car went out of control, that's what it looked like. And then it must have spun around so it was facing backwards and hit a lamppost and the lamppost fell on the car. Yeah, and I think, they told me that my husband probably died immediately. He didn't have any bruising or anything like that. So I was, I was happy to know that, you know, but, um, but this was it. I was still working on this head of George Bush when Ryan called me and said, you know, Dad's been in an accident and I think it's bad, you know. And then, you know, we, I went home and my friend came with me and we were sitting there waiting for hours before finally the police came. We kept phoning 911 to try and get some information and they kept asking us the name of the road and we kept saying it's an access road to the 40. You know, <laughs> oh, we can't tell you because you don't have an address and all this stuff. <laughs> Anyways, so then the police came and said, you know, that he had died. So, so I still went to the march on the Saturday, partly because so many people came over to give me their condolences that it got a little, got to be a little too much for me. <laughs> I sort of just wanted to get away from it, you know. And, and I thought that Bert would approve that I did go out, you know. So, so Ryan and, and Donovan and I, uh, Donovan had come back, obviously, from B.C. when Bert died. And so we all went out on that march. And, uh, and from then on, I continued to, I think, go to CLAC meetings. Oh, and then I got involved in Solidarity Cross Borders. So I was going to the regular meetings of Solidarity Cross Borders, which is 
an organization to help um, people who are um, refugees and are not able to get their status. And uh, so a support group for them. And, um, and then also, one day I went into the School for Community and Public Affairs when I was doing my Fernwood work and went to speak to Eric Schrag, who was one of the teachers there, and told Eric that I was really looking to get more involved politically since Bert had died. I really wanted something to, to really get involved in, you know? But at some point there, I also went to hear um, somebody talk about uh, Palestine. Uh -huh. And then I thought I would like to go to Palestine. And I spoke to Jaggy about it. And Jaggy put me on to, he had gotten this email from this woman in New York City who had organized this group of older women. She, they called themselves women of a certain age. And they were mostly all Jewish women who were anti-Zionist. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were looking for other people who might be interested or whatever. So I got in touch with this woman. And that in the end, I went to uh, Palestine um, with them, but I was involved in the local, um, I don't think it exists now, but it was a solidarity, Palestinian solidarity group that I was involved with. It had a simple name, maybe Solidarity for Palestine or something. So they, they, they agreed to do the kind of training, you know, preparation for me, mm -hmm. so that by the time I went down to New York, um, I'd be kind of ready, you know. And uh, so we were two weeks in, in Palestine, in the West Bank, and um, involved in one particular demonstration that was really scary. Um, and, uh, and I still had all these years, I continued to have these, from like 1998 on, have these chronic pain problems in my hip. So when I had decided to go to Palestine, I was not in pain. You know, I would have periods of time when it was okay. But it started up again on May Day. <laughs> and so I went in June, and I was in very bad shape for walking. It was really, uh, you know, it was really hard for me. I couldn't keep up with people, and, you know, and I felt I wanted so much to be able to do more, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So that would have been 2004, yeah. And then, oh yeah, so I had, I was got, interrupted, forgot my train of thought there. When I was talking to Eric Schrag, he said, how would you like to join the, the board of the Immigrant Workers Center? Mm -hmm. So that was the other thing I did. So I got involved with them, and that was the early days for them. They were still trying to be more clear about their mandate and so on and so forth. And... Um, and I, to this day, I don't know that I really contributed much to them, except that's how I met Tess, right? Tess Tessalona, and how I got involved with the women of diverse origins, because that was supposed to be a part of, you know, of their, their work, right? And, uh, and I think that's what Tess said, why don't you join us, you know? And so, uh, as you know, I worked with them up until 2010, and then I took a break. and <laughs> um, never went back. Partly now, you know, now I might go back to some of their meetings, but now that I have two grandchildren in St. Anne and they're little, 
and Saturday's a good day to spend with them, then I tend to go out there, you know. And uh, I know that from everybody that I know who's got grandchildren, that when they get older, you know, they won't be that interested in their grandma. Mm -hmm. So it's a temporary thing, right? <laughs> but it's very important to me, so. Yeah.